And, you know, there's this, this famous saying about, um, about like, if you're going to criticize someone or judge something, someone, it says, uh, you know, if you're going to criticize someone, you should walk a mile in their shoes. Because that way, when you criticize them, you're a mile away and you have their shoes. <laughs> right? That's the, the famous joke. But, and, and, that's, and that's part of what, um, you know, I want to... to us to think about today as we go through the story of Abraham um, is, is not in terms of judging him, but in the idea that in order to get the most out of this passage, we really have to put ourselves in Abraham's shoes. We really have to think of, like, what would it be like to be in Abraham's position, um, to be in, in, his, in his place in this, because he's going to face this test of faith, um, and, and we all have faced, faces, faced tests of faith in our life, um, but, but for Abraham, this is a really, it's a big test uh, that we'll see. And we really want to think about, what would I do if I was in Abraham's position? What would it be like for me if I was in his position? Um, even if it's not the exact situation, what would that kind of situation be like? So we're going to start out with uh, Genesis chapter 22, verses 1 through 8. Your only son whom you love. It says this, After these things God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, Here I am. He said, Take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah, and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. And he cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place which God had told him. On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. Then Abraham said to his young men, Stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac his son. And he took, his hand, and he took in his hand the fire and the knife. So they went, both of them together, and Isaac said to his father, Abraham, My father, and he said, Here I am, my son. He said, Behold, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. So they went, both of them together. Okay. So it tells us right off the bat, in verse 1, that God tested Abraham. Right? That this is going to be a test. Um, and so we have to kind of think about what's the purpose of this test. What's the per- why, did he, why is he going to test Abraham? What's the point? What good is it? Because here's the thing. If we think about what we know about God, or we know that God is all-knowing, right? Omniscient. He knows everything. That he knows us intimately, right? He knows every hair on our head. He wove us together in our mother's womb. We know all these things that he knows about us. He knows us better, that better than we know ourselves, right? He knows our, understands our motives better than we do. He understands why we do things the way we do. All of those things, he knows deeper than we can know our own selves. So why would he need to test Abraham? Is he going to find anything out about Abraham he didn't know? Like, do you think that there's any chance that at the end of this test, God's going to be surprised and go, oh, I didn't know he was going to do that. No, those aren't words that God has ever said, right? God has never said, I didn't know that was going to happen. He's never said it. It's not in his vocabulary. It's not in, it doesn't make any sense in what we know about God. So why would he need to test Abraham? What's the purpose of it? Well, 
tests are for our benefit, right? Because we might find out something that we don't know about ourselves. Or you've probably all had experiences in your life where you go, wow, I didn't think that I could do that. Right? Or, or wow, I didn't think that that would go the way that, I thought that, that, that it went. I didn't know that it, that would happen. I didn't know I could get through this thing. Or we have these experiences, and it's how we grow. We grow our faith when it is tested. Right? It's similar to the idea of um, weightlifting. Right? When I was back in, in high school and playing football and things like that, I used to work out in the weight room. And one of the, the coaches explained it to me in this way. They're like, as you, as you work out, if this is your muscle, um, they have to tear the muscle. Or this is why you get sore when you, when you lift weights. You tear the muscle, and then it grows back together, as, and it heals. And then you tear it again, and it grows back together, and you tear it, and you see how it's getting bigger? Right? Through that, through that workout. Right? Through the fact that you're working your muscles to the point where they get sore, where you're there where they're growing bigger because they're being tested, right? If you only ever lifted what you knew you could lift, if you only ever lifted weights that were, that were lower than what you needed, you would never get, your muscles wouldn't get bigger, right? They'd be conditioned and they'd work well, but they're not going to get stronger unless you test them, unless you make them, unless you push them. It's similar for us in our faith. We have to, God pushes us beyond what we think we can handle, Right? And, and it causes us to grow. It causes our faith to grow because we have to trust God with something we didn't have to trust him with before, with more than we had to trust him with before. Right? That's that, there's that famous saying, that, that like, oh, you know, God won't give you more than you can handle. You're not going to find that in the Bible. <laughs> so, sorry. If that's one of your favorite sayings, just plug your ears for a minute because it's ridiculous. It does, it's not true. This idea that God won't give you more than you can handle He'll give you more than you can handle so that you have to give it to him. That's the whole thing. The whole thing is dependence, reliance upon God, right? Is learning that we need him. So he absolutely will give you more than you can handle so that you will turn to him and ask him to carry it. Because you're not meant to carry it on your own. He will give you more. I also thought, I had this thought as I was reading this, this passage and as we're getting, we're getting close to the end of Abraham's life, that, that we only have in these stories, we have these big landmark events in Abraham's life, but like decades go by at certain points in, the, in these stories where we don't know what's happening with Abraham, what little things that are happening, that interactions that he's having with God. We don't know about the small things, the, the day-to-day, the year-to-year things that are happening. We only have these big landmark moments. And it's similar in our own lives, where we have big things that happen to us that are like, oh, this is a big moment of I have to trust God with this big thing. And those are the kind of things that when it's time to give a testimony or share about what God's done in your life, those are the things that you share. But it's also true that, that on a weekly basis, you have things that you're trusting God with, or things that you are nervous about or anxious about, and you're having to give to him on a regular basis. The same would have been true for Abraham, right? So this isn't like everything was smooth, and then this happened, and then these big things happen. He's having all the little bumps along the way, just like we do. Um, and it's all part of his faith journey. Another interesting thing in this passage is he says specifically in, uh, in verse 2, take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, right? He says, your only son Isaac. Now, was that true? No, right? He had Ishmael. But right before this, in the previous chapter, Ishmael had been sent away, right? Ishmael had been sent away. 
And, and essentially, part of that was God taking away Abraham's backup plan. Right? Abraham kind of had this not legitimate, but a viable son that he could turn to if something happened. He had to have a backup there. Right? And God's reminding him, like, you sent him away. That's done with. This is your only son now. This is the heir. This is where the line will go through. And so he's, hint, he's reminding him of that fact in this moment because it's got to be clear, like, this, what I'm asking you to do, to sacrifice your son Isaac, it's your only option. I'm asking you to give me everything. Where he's asking him to give him <coughs> the most precious thing to him, right, to be obedient to God. And that's the question, that's the test, is would Abraham be willing to give up his most precious thing in his life to be obedient to God? And so this is where we need to put ourselves in Abraham's position and go, what would I do, and what would God ask of me? Right? What would be the thing that God asks of me? For many of us, it would be children, but not for everybody. Um, and, and so what would that be? What would it look like? What would be the things, and, and maybe even a good idea to think about like a top 10. What are the top 10 things that would be the hardest for you to let go of? If God said, hey, I want that. I want you to give that up. I want you to quit that. I want you to give it to me. What would be the top 10 things that you would be the hardest for you to, to give up? And consider it. What would it be like to be in Abraham's position? Because here's the other thing. There was no good reason for this request. Right? This is not a situation where you could go, well, yeah, because, you know, this is a good thing that, that God wanted him to do. He wanted him to give, give up Isaac, but it was going to accomplish this good purpose. This is totally unreasonable and unrealistic there's no reason he doesn't give him any good reason like oh i need to replace isaac with somebody better no there's no reason for it he gives him no good reason and so for us oftentimes what i see there there are people who are willing to give things up if if god will give them a good reason to do so right if if we said like hey you know i want you to sell your house because if god if you felt like god was telling you i want you to sell your house because i want you to to downsize your house and, and you need to get a smaller house and give a lot of that money to some good cause, right? To some mission or something like that that, that you heard about. You did this big thing. Like, that would be a big deal, right? That would be like a big thing in your life of like, and, and talking with your spouse and with people that know you and, and a lot of people will go, you're crazy if you're doing that. That would be a big deal, right? If you were going to do that. But you would only do that if there was a good reason Right? You'd only do that if there was a, a valuable thing that you were going to give it to. Right? If God just told you today, hey, I want you to sell your house and just, uh, and just get rid of it. I just don't want you to have that anymore. Right? That would, you would go, no, God, you've got to give me a good reason. Right? Here, Abraham doesn't get a good reason. He doesn't get a good reason. God's giving him this message. He doesn't have a good reason for it. There's no good reason for this request. And yet we see Abraham is obedient. And I think it's <clears throat> it's written this way, like in verse 3. So if we look at verse 3 again, Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, took two of his young men with him, took his son Isaac, cut the wood for the offering, arose, went to the place God had told him. It's, it's listed out step by step. Like, do we need to, like, do, we, do you need to tell us that he saddled the donkey? Of course he saddled the donkey. Right, if I was starting to tell you about my day and I was like, I woke up, went out, got in my car, I buckled my seatbelt, right? If there's not something later that, that, that has to do with the seatbelt, 
you would be, why did you tell me you buckled your seatbelt? I assume that you would, right? We don't need to know that, but it's, it's pointing out these steps of obedience that he's having to go through, right? The pain, again, if we put ourselves in Abraham's shoes, what would that be like to wake up in the morning and go, this is the day that God told me I'm supposed to go sacrifice my son. And to actually get up and even just put that saddle on that donkey, right? Even to go and cut the wood, right? Every step would be excruciating. Thinking about the fact that you're getting closer, right? Every step of that way is a step of faith and a step of obedience, taking, doing the next thing that's necessary to make this happen. Every step is difficult for him. Every step is, is excruciating. <coughs> the other thing we see is that, you know, he says, he tells the young men, verse 5, to stay with the donkey and the boy are going to go up. Abraham took the wood for the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac, his son, and, and so Isaac's carrying the wood up the hill. So what does this tell us? Isaac is old enough to carry a pile of wood enough to burn an animal, or a boy in this case, up a hill. So he's not a little kid. Right? Oftentimes we, you think of this story, you hear this story, you think of like, oh, it's like a little kid. He has to be at least a teenager in this story. And, and you go, then why does it say boy? Well, here's the thing. In the previous chapter, if you remember last week, we talked about Ishmael being sent away. He's also referred to as the boy in that passage. He's, refer he's referred to as, you know, they took the boy and put him under the tree and all those things. But we established last week, if you remember the math that we did, that he was about 17 when that happened. And he's being referred to as a boy. And, and that's not, not how we think of it. When we think of that, we think, oh, it's like a little kid. But here's the thing. In the heart of Hagar, last week with Ishmael, in the heart of Abraham, here this week with, with Isaac, it's his son. It doesn't matter how old he gets. Right? It's, it's, he's still thinking, even as this is a, a young man that's carrying the wood up the hill willingly for him, carrying the wood on his back, it's still his son, it's still his little boy, as far as he's concerned, in his heart, in his mind. That's how he's thinking about it. It's not, oh, this is a, just another man. Right? It's his son, this is his boy. And Isaac carries the wood up the hill. We'll see next week that all of this is, is foreshadowing the cross. And we can see here, it foreshadows the cross, right? Isaac carries the wood for the sacrifice up the hill. Jesus will carry the cross up the hill. He'll carry his wood on his back up the hill. He carries it. <coughs> so here's, and here's another thing to think about. Abraham is over 100 years old at this point, right? He's 100 years old when Isaac is born. So he's over 100 years old, probably 115, 117. You know, we don't know exactly how old Isaac is here, but like I established, he has to be at least a teenager. Although I think once you're over 100, it's kind of arbitrary, <laughs> right? Like, I don't know, there's a big difference between 100, 110, is there? I don't know. But he's an old man. Isaac is young, young enough and strong enough to carry a pile of wood up the hill. This shows us that Isaac is a willing participant in this, right? He could easily get away, right? He could easily get away. I would take any teenager, any 13-year-old any even, let's go pretty young, 13-year-old, anybody over 65, if you can catch them, 
I'll give you 20 bucks. Right? <laughs> we'll send them out on this field. We have a 13-year-old, anybody over 65, you can catch them, I'll give you 20 bucks. Right? That's, that's the thing. Is like it, it, if Isaac wasn't willing, he, this wouldn't have gone this way. Isaac has to be a willing participant. He has to understand what's happening. And he does understand what's happening. He even asks, he asks uh, Abraham, where's the sacrifice? Right? He hasn't told him yet what's going on here, but he can sense that something's up. Right? He's like, this isn't right. We're missing kind of the key ingredient. We're missing the main thing. And then Abraham tells him that God will provide for himself the lamb for the burnt offering. Now, there's the interesting thing. It's like, did Abraham sense that? Did he know that that would happen? Because, spoiler alert, this was going to happen. Did, did he know that that was going to happen? Or is he just trying to reassure Isaac at this point? He's like, let's get up the mountain and then I'll explain what's happening. Hard to know. Hard to know. But Abraham was convinced. Here's what we do know. Is Abraham was convinced that God would keep his promises. In Hebrews chapter 11, it, it, it interprets this for us and says, By faith Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, and he who had not received promises was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, Through Isaac shall your offspring be named. He considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. He's saying that, that Abraham would have had such faith, he would have believed fully that God was going to keep his promise, that he could believe even that, that if he had gone through with it, God could have raised Isaac up from the dead. And we, and, and we know that's true. And, and he says here, basically, in a sense, that is what happened, right? In a sense he does end up receiving him back. All right, let's look to the next section here. Chapter 22, verses 9 through 14. When they came to the place of which God had told him, Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order, to, in order and bound Isaac his son and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham, and he said, here I am. He said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing that you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the name of the place the Lord will provide, as it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord it shall be provided. Okay. So again, we see these excruciating steps of obedience where he's like, he built the altar, he bound Isaac, which again, Isaac at this point had to have been, we don't have the conversations not recorded, but he had to explain what was going to happen. Because Isaac had to be obedient to his father and to God as well, right? To be a willing participant in this because he could have gotten away. You're strong enough to carry a pile of wood up a hill. You're strong enough to get away from a hundred-plus-year-old man. And so he is a willing participant in this. But again, these excruciating stuff of wrapping Isaac up, laying him on the altar, right? I think every step of the way, it's, it's another step of faith of going, okay, I God, I can't believe this is what I'm doing. I can't believe this is what you want me to do. I'm going to continue to be obedient even though I don't understand and I, 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 I don't agree, right? There's no way that Abraham agreed with this. 
There's no way that Abraham thought, oh, this is a great idea, God. Right? But he's going through with it. He's taking each step that he needs to take, believing that God will keep his promises. And sometimes that's what it's like for us. We have to go, God, I don't understand, but I'll take the next step. I'll take the next step, and I'll take the next step until you stop me. Right? And that's what happens here, is that even to the point where he grabs the knife, he's ready to do it, and God stops him. Because each step of the way is excruciating steps of faith, of going, yes, God, I will trust you, I'll trust that you are good, I'll trust that you keep your promises, even though you're asking me to do these things I don't understand. And what we see here is another theophany, right? We see another appearance of the pre-incarnate Christ. That's the theophany, that's what happens here. The angel of the Lord, in this case, comes and says, now I know, right? He says, do not lay your hand upon the boy, don't do anything. He says, now I know that you fear God, seeing that you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. So again, there, there the, the angel of the Lord is affirming that, it, that the angel of the Lord is the pre-incarnate Christ because he's talking about himself as God. Right, so it's further evidence that we know that. But he's saying, now I know. Now, again, is that true? No. God knew already that this, that this is how it would go, that this is what would happen. But really, now Abraham knows. Now Abraham knows that he would go through with it. Now Abraham knows how much he believes God. He's changed him, right? And he's saying, now I know. And, and really what we see here, again, because this is, like we'll see next week, we're going to, uh, Pastor Jason's going to take a look at, at the actual uh, crucifixion of Jesus. But we'll see that this is a foreshadowing of that and that this is really Jesus saying, stop, that's my job. Right? He's really saying, stop, that's what I'm going to do. He's, he's stopping it, not forever, but for him. <coughs> and again, we'll see there's parallels with him and Isaac where he's a willing participant in that. <coughs> and he says, you know, you, I see that you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. And I want to I take one, one thing on that and this idea of, of the fact that this was Abraham's child. Um, that's something that's difficult for a lot. It's certainly difficult for me to say, like, how, how willing am I to sacrifice my children's safety or risk or for the sake of the gospel? Right, and there's an example of that. We have an example of that even with our own missionaries, the Schmitz. Um, right, they're, they're missionaries in Indonesia, and they have three kids um, that they took over there. School-age kids, they took over to Indonesia. It's a foreign country. They don't understand what, you know, necessarily how to operate. It's a dangerous place for Christians at times. Um, and, and yet they took, they were willing to take their kids over there, and then the enemy decided to make it a little harder and make one of their children have serious health problems, right, in a foreign country. Now, that would be enough for me to be very desirous of, to come back to the United States. Right, go, wait, I'm, I'm not gonna, my, my child's gonna have serious health problems. I gotta be in a place where I understand the healthcare system and I trust the healthcare system. Not in a foreign country where I don't understand what's happening or what they might have. Maybe I don't, can't even communicate with the doctors. What am I, I can't even do that. And yet they've stayed. Because they feel that God has called them there 
God's called them to that risk. And, and I've noticed that as a trend in, in, my own, in missionaries that I know, many of them, this is the case. Right? Many of them, some good friends of mine, they're, about, they're getting ready in the next year or two to go to, to Jordan. And one of their children has had to have several surgeries and things like that, that they're still going to take him over there when he still has these health complications. And, and I think that, that oftentimes the enemy adds that as a temptation of like, are you willing to risk this? And for us, we have that, that same question. What are we willing to risk that's precious to us for the sake of the gospel? Not to be reckless, right? Not to be reckless, but, but what are we willing to risk? Are we willing to put ourselves at some risk for the sake of the gospel, given the risk that Jesus was willing to put himself at to come for us? Where we face this question all the time in, in our, one of our Mexico trips, right? We go down to, to Tijuana, and especially back in two, around 2007, 2008, there was some increased cartel violence, and a bunch of churches stopped going. It's too dangerous. We did our due diligence. We looked at the, at the process. We talked to a more, the group that we go with, and what are the, how are you dealing with safety and all that. And we don't, you don't want to intentionally put yourself at risk. But then we still went, right? And, were there, and there were some parents that didn't send their kids because they were afraid of that. But for many of us, it was like, yeah, we're willing to, to put ourselves at some risk for the sake of the gospel. We have to be. That's what God asks of us. If he calls you to something, despite the risk, we have to trust that he is faithful, that he can protect us where he will and where he wants to, and that ultimately to agree with Paul that to live is Christ and to die is gain. But it's, it's the putting us in these same questions as, as Abraham faced. <clears throat> and then we see that, that God provides this ram that Abraham sacrifices uh, in place of Isaac. Um, and and here, here's the thing. Imagine the difference in worship if God had just said, like, hey, go up there and, and sacrifice a ram, or if he went through this process. The difference in level of worship for Abraham and Isaac. Like, that had to be the most enthusiastic worship anyone's ever had. Right? The fact that that God, they were, they were thought this was going to happen, and then God provided this way, he stopped it, not going to happen, sacrificed this ram. They had to be bursting for joy that their life was spared, that there was an alternative, that they, they were, they could, something replaced Isaac's life, right? Something s- took their place. That's our reality every day. <laughs> this idea of substitutes for our life is our reality every day. Right, that, that Jesus sacrificed his life for us, that he gave his life for us, that should result in enthusiastic worship. And then we last see that, that Abraham names the place the Lord will provide. But the saying becomes, on the mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. Right? That becomes, it's, it says it's said to this day. People talk about that mountain and say, on the mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. That's future, that's looking forward, that's foreshadowing, pointing to Jesus' ultimate sacrifice for us <clears throat> it shall be provided god will provide the ultimate sacrifice jesus in our place and so we see that, that god tests abraham but he prov- he provides the answers to the test he provides the way to the t- to the test this is super cheesy but i have to say it um god gives us tests, but they're always open book. Oh. 
I'm, I'm, I apologize. I, <laughs> right, like, I thought of that, and I know it's a sign I've seen it before, and I just like, oh, I feel bad. Um, <laughs> but it's true, right? It's true that he gives us answers, right? He gives us a way. In James chapter 1, verses 5 through 8, it says, If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given to him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. He's saying we can ask God. If we don't know the answers, if we don't know what is what we should do, we can ask him. He said he will give us the answers. We ask believing that it's the case, believing that it's real. Don't don't do it the way that you know people use a magic eight ball or something like that and go, oh, maybe this is the case. No, believe that it's real. Believe that he's real, that he will do that. First Corinthians talks about this uh, in a similar way. He talks about temptation, which is not the same as testing, but it functions in a similar kind of way. First Corinthians 10, verse 13. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful and he will let you be tempted beyond your ability. He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Right? He provides a way of escape in those times. He, is, he intends us to rely on him. We also see a similar idea in, in uh, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Uh, they had faith that God would provide miraculous rescue to them when they were asked to worship idols, right? They're asked by Nebuchadnezzar to worship idols. You know this story. They, he wants to send them into the furnace. They have this similar experience. Daniel chapter 3, verse 16 through 18. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Right? They're asked to worship these idols, and they say, no, and, and you can punish us however you want. You can throw us into the furnace. God can rescue us if, we, if he wants to. And either way, we're not going to do it. Because we're going to trust that God has better for us whether in this life or the next. All right, final section, uh, verses 15 through 24. Be blessed. The angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this and not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you. And I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of the heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. And your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies. And in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed, because you have obeyed my voice. So Abraham returned to his young men, and they arose and went together to Beersheba, and Abraham le lived at Beersheba. Now after these things it was told to Abraham, Behold, Milcah has also borne children to your brother Nahor, Uz his firstborn, Buzz his brother, Kimuel the father of Aram, Hesed, Hazo, Pildash, Jidlaf, and Bethuel. Bethuel fathered Rebekah. These eight Milcah bore to Nahor, Abraham's brother. Moreover, his concubine, whose name was Reuma, bore Teba, Gaham, Tahash, and Mahakah. 
Okay, so we see the blessing reiterated again. Again, that's something that we have seen already, that, that from the time that God makes his first promises to Abraham in, in chapter 12, um, they're reiterated over and over again where God is reminding him, these are my promises to you. This is my covenant with you. This is what I'm going to do for and through you. But here we see that the angel of the Lord swears by himself, right? He says he swears by himself. This also points to theophany, right? That, that he's making an oath in his own name. And this is the first time in Scripture that that has happened, that God's making an oath in his own name. And so he reiterates the covenant with Abraham that he's going to bless Abraham, that Abraham's offspring will be like the, the stars of the sky or the sand of the seashore, right? They'll be so numerous. And that in Abraham, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. And it's important that we see that the Abrahamic covenant is, is vital because it points to Jesus. Where the, this idea of through you, all the nations of the earth will be blessed is talking about Jesus. All the nations of the earth are blessed through Jesus. That it includes us. Right? When you read the Abrahamic covenant, when you get, read God's promises to Abraham, that includes you. Because when he says, through you, all the nations of the earth will be blessed, he's talking about that Jesus will come from his, from his line and that ultimately that will provide salvation for us. God, because from the beginning, that's what we see through the book of Genesis, God is working out his plan for restoration from the, from the moment of the fall. We're in the midst of that plan, right? And we're a part of it. In 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9, it tells us, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Where the point we're at now, right, is, is, is fast-forwarded from where we're at here with Abraham. Right? The, all the nations of the, of the earth have been blessed through Jesus. He's provided a way, offered a salvation by the blood, by, by the blood of the cross. Right? His, his sacrifice pays for our sins. If we accept his forgiveness and, and choose to follow him as our Lord, he'll give us life. He'll give us the ability to share that good news. And we have that ability, right? We have that call that we are now to go and tell that to the world, tell that to the nations. We're here today because somebody told somebody who told somebody who told somebody who told somebody who eventually told you, right? That's why we're all here. And so we have the call to continue that mission and take this message to the world. Take the blessing that Jesus has provided to the world. We're called to share that because you are a chosen race. He's chosen us so that we may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. So the question is, we're going to take that, and the song we're going to sing today talks about that. Do we take that message to the world? The final thing we see here is, is news from, uh, from Nahor, from Abraham's brother, that he's, he's had some kids. And you're like, well, why, why do we care? <laughs> right, well, this is a weird ending. Um, it moves the story forward, right? Isaac's now, he, he's grown now. Uh, he's going to survive, apparently. And so he's going to need a wife, right? He's going to need to move forward. It, it, and so that's, that's what that section's about. Let's finish up with how should we then live? We want this, this, uh, this word to change us. And so here are some possibilities of things you might take away from today. Number one, <coughs> be thankful for the tests God has given you. 
or the fact that God has given you tests, the fact that He has challenged your faith in the past, that has made you who you are today. Right? That has, has made you strong in faith where you are now, that you can share that with others. It's a good thing. Number two, uh, believe that God can and will provide all that you need. Right? That He can provide the answers to the tests, that He can provide a way that He is what you need. Even though He'll give you more than you can handle, He'll provide what you need to handle it. It's His, it's his to carry. And number three, recognize God's plan for the restoration of His kingdom and your place in it. Right? That you have that place to take this message to the world. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You for this story that we, ha- we know what happened here with Isaac and Abraham. And we thank you for Abraham's faith that we can learn from it. I pray that we would put ourselves in, in his shoes and go, what, what would I do, God? How would that be for me if I was in, that, in his position? God, I pray that you would give us the faith that we need to, to be able to make that kind of sacrifice, to be able to trust you that much, to trust you even to raise someone from the dead, God. We, we want that kind of faith. We want to be able to share that faith with others. We want to be able to give uh, your gospel to those that are desperately in need of it. We thank you for all these things. In your name.